You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts, but the Lakers have two. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Welcome to the show. I'm Aaron Fishman. Thank you for finding us. If you haven't listened before, typically we do team-focused interviews. Today's going to be a lot different. I'm joined by the talented Jonathan Abrams in honor of the debut of his very first book. It's called Boys Among Men, How the Prep to Pro Generation Redefined the NBA and sparked a basketball revolution. And the book's as exciting as the title suggests. We'll get more into it in the interview. But just a little bit more on Jonathan. He's undoubtedly one of the best basketball feature writers of our time, having logged invaluable stints at the New York and LA Times before penning superb pieces for Grantland. While I have you here, I implore you to stay tuned to listen to the fascinating conversation between Jonathan and me all about the book, and read the book if you get a chance. I'm sure you won't regret it. Let's get started. Hey, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on here. It's really my pleasure. I think you did a tremendous job on the book. It was certainly a huge undertaking. Your first book, I know you worked on it for four years and put your heart and soul into it. What does it mean to finally be able to share your hard work with the world? It's an interesting feeling. Um, the first time I got the hard cover copy of it, I really didn't go through it because it was almost like it really didn't exist. So it's a pretty surreal feeling. It's kind of like your baby, right? Yeah, and especially because, you know, I finished writing it basically last at the beginning of last year. So there was still a long time just waiting for it to actually come out. So, you know, you're waiting month and month and month and month for it to, you know, finally hit. And now that the moment's here, it's incredible. The book's cover, from left to right, shows Kevin Garnett, Dwight Howard, Kobe Bryant, and LeBron James, four players who made the jump from high school to the NBA. They've all survived and thrived and are essentially living the dream. But it's important to stress that this book is far from just an uplifting story about high school boys who went on to achieve riches and fame in the NBA. You report the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. How important was it for you to paint the entire picture, even the most unflattering parts? I think it was the same way in which I try to look at any type of story. This was just obviously a bigger undertaking in that, you know, I don't try to embellish or or downcast anything. I just try to paint an accurate, clear picture, and that's what I try to do for this. So, you know, there was obviously guys who made it, and there were obviously guys who didn't make it. So to tell a complete story, you have to show both sides. I got the most out of the stories of the guys who didn't make it. Their stories were just so real and human. But my understanding from the book is that the majority of the guys from the prep to pro generation did make the NBA, and they were successful. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would definitely agree. And even guys who weren't forecast as, or they were forecast as superstars, and they fell far short of those expectations as like maybe... Al Harrington or Gerald Green, they've been able to carve out sustainable NBA careers for themselves. So I don't think they necessarily fell short uh, in their own right either. 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. A lot of these prep-to-pro players' level of success is largely subjective. Take Kwame Brown, for example. He was selected number one overall by the Washington Wizards, and he was paired with Michael Jordan, an aging Jordan. And so the window of opportunity for success was kind of limited, so he was thrown into the fire, and the expectations were tremendous. Obviously, he failed to live up to those expectations. He wasn't even close. But he carved out a niche in the NBA as a strong rim protector and rebounder. He managed to hang around for more than a decade. He was smart with his money. By most reasonable and sociological standards, he was a success, right? Yeah, Aaron. It, it really, you're right. It depends on how you look at it. If you look at it from the prism of he was his number one pick and he was forecast to be this dominating interior player, then his career was probably a disappointment but then if you look at it from the other side of the spectrum where the average NBA career is probably about three or four years and he played longer than a decade he made more than 70 million dollars whereas if he had gone to college he probably would have been obviously drafted lower who knows how long his career would have lasted it probably would have been shortened had he gone to college you know if you look at it from those perspectives then it's a success Of the players who barely lasted in the NBA or maybe didn't even get drafted, I'd imagine a good number of them were hesitant to tell their story or against it completely. NDEB, 2003 first-round pick of the Minnesota Timberwolves, spoke with you over the phone in the summer of 2013. Seemed like it was kind of like pulling teeth. He was defensive. All he apparently gave you was a quote about the quality of Staples Center nachos. Sounded like a huge struggle. Well, you know, I think if if you're growing up and you hear how you're going to be very successful, how you're going to be the next so-and-so NBA superstar, and then for you not to be able to live up to those expectations for whatever reason, that's something that's going to be carried with you for the rest of your life. And people are going to continually bring it up, people who don't even know you. You can Google your name on the Internet and probably see your name associated with being a bus. So I'm sure that has to wear people down after after a little while. With E.B., I was just hoping to be able to tell his story, but it didn't look like he was ready for that yet. Yeah, it's definitely an understandable reaction, feeling jaded and demoralized, essentially, after being built up with such high expectations and then failing to live up to them. You have to hope that he's able to, in time, come to terms with his lot in life, put everything else behind him and make the most of it. Would you say EB's reaction was more of an outlier compared to the other lesser successful prep-to-pro guys you interviewed, or were there others like him? That's that's tough to say. I think it was a mixture, a little bit of everything. There are guys who definitely didn't want to talk about it as much, guys who have been out of the spotlight for a decade or so and have tried to leave that in the past. And there are guys who are more open about it, who are willing to illuminate their stories that I think I was able to capture in the book. Kevin Garnett and Kobe Bryant are clearly two central figures in the book, and I think the timing of the book's release is interesting in that Kobe Bryant only has one month left of NBA play. Kevin Garnett's days are numbered as well. With the nearing of the end of each of their careers, how much of that was a coincidence that the book is being released at this time? I think it was largely a a coincidence. Uh, We obviously didn't know when I started writing it three, four years ago that he was going to be retiring at this point. Back when I started writing it, he was pretty much still at the top of his game, and then his injuries started occurring one after another. 
So I think that was mostly just a just a coincidence. But if you look at when I started writing it, it, it was about that time when you could see how these guys' careers were going to be. You know, a guy like Kobe and a guy like Garnett, their careers were largely defined. So I think it was a good time to write about that generation of players at that specific time. Yeah, you said it. Before these last three injury-riddled seasons, Kobe Bryant's legacy was already cemented as one of the greats. He and Kevin Garnett were two of the most successful prep-to-pro players easily that the NBA has ever seen. I don't think, and you probably would agree with me, that it's that surprising that Kobe Bryant's body is breaking down. I think it makes sense given all the mileage on him with the international competition going deep into the playoffs every single year of his career, essentially, but it is sad. Yeah, I think all those miles catch us up with anybody, and especially a guy like Kobe, who traditionally goes very far into the playoffs each year, except for these Lakers now. Um, yeah, all, all that builds up and, and tacks on, and you know, he started when he was 17 years old in the NBA. Early on in the book, you shed some light on a teenage KG who was barely able to move after grueling two-a-day workouts in training camp as a rookie. On the maturity side, he also routinely forgot to pack essentials for road trips. What's the challenge of humanizing a larger-than-life NBA legend like Kevin Garnett? I don't think there's that much of a challenge if you just look at these people as just human beings, which, which they are. They all have stories and where the origin tells of where they begin. And I try to look at each story almost like, okay, how did this guy become who he is today? What influenced him and what made him become that person? So you just start from there and, and try to unravel, unravel the tape and figure it all out. Yeah, that's an important approach to take. And it shows in your work, you did a tremendous job of humanizing these guys. And as I mentioned before, a lot of them can seem larger than life and like they were destined for the success that they went on to enjoy. But everyone started from somewhere. They had key decisions to make and hurdles to clear before reaching their success. I want to go back to Kevin Garnett. A a young KG told Kevin McHale after practice, this is really hard. How did you do this for so long? Two decades later, Kevin Garnett's still doing it. Barely. (laughs) but he's still doing it. Isn't that remarkable? It is. And I think the one thing that separates the guys who made it and the guys who probably didn't have the career that they once envisioned is that guys like Kobe and Garnett and LeBron immediately viewed this as a job and not necessarily a right. So Kevin is somebody who's always worked on his talent, even when he was an MVP player at the top of his game. Very early on in the process, Kobe Bryant and his dad, Joe Jellybean Bryant, who also played in the NBA, were supremely confident in Kobe's ability to pretty soon become a dominant star in the league. I think arrogance is probably even a better word for it. (laughs) We know Kobe Bryant is a tremendously hard worker. He has so much natural-born talent. But in your mind, how critical was that arrogant quality in enabling him to succeed? I think there's that that well-worn line that there's a difference between arrogance and, and cockiness and confidence. And I think, you know, it was all the above with Kobe Bryant. He certainly came in and rubbed some of his teammates the wrong way, but he came in thinking that he was the best player on a, on a team that had just made the playoffs. It was a pretty good Laker team that had just gotten Shaquille O'Neal and he came in and wanted to 
wanted to already shine and, and get the ball all the time. So I think that confidence and his willingness to want to get better really uh, helped his growth speed along. And as you write in the book, with Dell Harris, nothing was given. Kobe Bryant had to earn every single minute out there that season. Yeah, Dell is definitely an old school coach. It's weird how connected Dell was in, in this whole thing because not only was Dell Kobe's coach, he also coached Joe Bryant, Kobe's dad, uh, with the Houston Rockets, and he also coached Moses Malone when Moses jumped straight into the ABA with the Utah Stars back in the, the mid-'70s. So it's weird how connected Dell is throughout this whole history. That's one thing I really like about the book. There are these common threads that connect player to player and story to story. Dell Harris is one example of that. But the book is a chronological narrative for the most part. Yeah, it is. It was uh, trying to figure out how to connect everything together and make the book flow with so many different characters was difficult at first, but then I tried to connect it by having just how they changed the NBA and basketball being the constant character that kind of changed and connected throughout the book. There was so much information in the book, but it was done seamlessly, relying on transitions, whether you were using a head-to-head high school matchup, shared coaches that a guy played under, mutual teammates throughout each guy's NBA career. Whatever the connection was, the transitions were so natural and seamless, and that made it seem like a coherent whole as opposed to disparate chapters devoted to each particular player phenomenon. What was the challenge in ordering the content and making it feel like one coherent story? Uh, It was difficult. That was one of the things that I struggled with for a little while. The first thing I did was try to do as much reporting on the subject as I could, try to talk to as many coaches and players and and agents as possible. And then I tried to construct uh, how the book was going to flow. And yeah, it was, it was difficult at first. I didn't want the same story over and over again in different chapters. And I didn't want the chapters to seem all, all disconnected. And I think, the one thing that did make sense was to try to connect it through kind of how the NBA grew up and matured because back when Kobe and KG were entering the league, Michael Jordan was still king and NBA salaries weren't anywhere near where it is today. So you can almost say that the NBA also grew up during this time with these players as well. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of the evolution of the NBA, In the book, you write about Kevin Garnett's turning down of a $103 million offer. He was labeled entitled and greedy by stars like Charles Barkley and other players in the league, wound up getting $120 million. And that was an important part of the history of the NBA, wasn't it? It was, because it also prompted the lockout that came right after that. To me, a number of the book's themes transcend basketball or even sports, in my opinion. But there was an underlying theme I wanted to highlight, and that's kids having to make their own mistakes. You tell of so many cases where a parent or older guardian offers to live with the teenage draftee only for the teenager to turn them down. What are your thoughts on that showing up again and again in your reporting? I mean, I think it's all on a case-by-case basis on where that kid is along the maturity level right there. Uh, Richard Lewis was one of those guys who didn't have his mom come out with him to Seattle. He was able to do just fine, whereas somebody like Corleone Young could have probably done better having a type of stability and mentorship there. You know, I just know 
how I was when I was 18 and going into my freshman year of college, uh, I, I stayed pretty close to home. And still, that was probably almost too much for me at that time. I wasn't ready to be a professional in anything in any sense of the word. I can definitely identify with that. I wouldn't have been anywhere close around that age. Let's talk about Al Harrington's integration into the league during the lockout. Antonio Davis and his family played a gigantic role in that. Harrington lived with the Davises, and there was certainly a structure in place, but the family also seemed to give him some freedom and flexibility. Did you find that such hands-on mentoring from a veteran teammate was incredibly rare for prep to pro players to get? Obviously, a lot of the veterans were threatened by the, the high school kid that just came in, threatening his, his, his livelihood. And then again, a lot of those young guys probably weren't willing to receive the guidance either. Yeah, it's an interesting dichotomy because the veteran players could definitely look at it like, hey, this guy hasn't done anything to take my minutes, and the coach is giving him minutes just because he's this new young guy who has potential, but you know, what has he actually done when push comes to shove? So I think there was some of that going on. I think a situation like Al Harrington and Antonio Davis was so rare and special because it was almost like the Davises inherited or adopted a teenager all of a sudden. So he was the babysitter and he picked up their kids and they asked him to be back in at a certain time of the night. So I think that whole situation was really unique and special and it helped Al transition into the NBA fairly quicker. That was one of the more rewarding anecdotes of the book. Just a really cool thing that Antonio Davis and his wife did for Al Harrington. I know Antonio Davis derives some personal benefit from it with the errands and chores getting done by Al, but just a really cool story in my opinion. Yeah, and then the funny thing is that I think the next in the next couple of years, <laughs> Davis got traded so that the Pacers could draft Jonathan Bender, another high school player. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the thanks Antonio Davis gets for integrating Harrington into the NBA, but... I did like what you did with Mississippi State, that section of the book. It's a book about the prep-to-pro generation of NBA players, and one might assume there's not really going to be much talk about college, but Mississippi State was a school that was impacted the most, you argue, by the prep-to-pro jumps of certain players, and there were guys like Jonathan Bender, Monte Ellis, there's one other one, I'm fr- oh, Travis Outlaw, he was going to be there, right? Yeah, Travis Outlaw. And the thing that was almost too ironic for Mississippi State is that by the time the one-year rule finally came, the guy that they got to actually stick there was Bernardo Sidney, who was viewed as a, a top guy in his class who would have gone immediately into the NBA. And his his uh, stint there was not good at all. And he never made it into the NBA, of course. Corleone Young was a high school guy who was drafted the same year as Al Harrington and Richard Lewis, but unlike Harrington, he didn't have a mentor like Antonio Davis. Because of the lockout, there was so much idle time, and he wasn't spending his time in productive or healthy ways. It was just a sad situation. If I'm remembering correctly, his head coach Alvin Gentry pitied him in a sense. Yeah, I think Alvin's quote was that they just kept him on the roster because they felt sorry for him. That's right. I remember reading that. You have to feel for the guy in that situation. I remember his teammates were playing tricks on him. 
there was one time where he had returned from injury and he was asked to lead the team onto the court. He did that, but no one was following him. And that was just kind of a microcosm of his time in Detroit and in the NBA. Yeah, he made some stupid decisions and he wasn't held accountable, but I'm curious to what extent do you think him falling to the second round, 40th overall, limited his opportunities to succeed? What I mean is, there was a lot less invested in him, in my opinion. He was more seen as a low-cost gamble, given the position at which he was drafted. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, for the first-round uh, selections, there's guarantee of that three years that you're going to be at least getting money if if you're not you know, contributing to an NBA team. You're going to be under contract with them unless they release you and you're still owed your money. So there's almost an incubation period where the team is invested in you financially. So that means that they're going to be invested in you emotionally and they're going to want to see you grow as a person, as a player where, you know, where Corleone fell as the second round pick, the Detroit Pistons could cut their losses with him at just about any time with nothing to lose. And that's pretty much what happened. Yep. By the age of 20, he was already done with the Pistons and 76ers and out of the NBA, 20 years old. Yeah, and the 76ers only took a flyer on him because Larry Brown had gone to the same military academy where Corleone had finished his, his high school career in Virginia. It's really a shame how quickly Corleone Young was cast aside by these organizations as soon as he was no longer useful to them. But I do understand it. I know that it's a money-making endeavor, a business, and you're treated as a commodity. You need to produce or you'll be quickly replaced. It's just cold and it's sad to me. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate and it's why I think guys who came in there with the maturity level and who viewed it and recognized it as a business and that they were a commodity in it and that they needed to reflect themselves as business people and athletes and be mindful of how to work and to grow their talents, those were the ones who obviously succeeded. Seven-footer Robert Swift is a particularly interesting case to me. Unlike Corleone Young, he was a lottery pick taken by the Supersonics in 2004. He would have gone to USC had he not jumped directly to the NBA. He was the only white prep-to-pro player, is that correct? Yeah, he, he was. There wasn't a lot of time devoted to Robert Swift in the book, I know he had some problems with his upbringing and the influence of people around him, and he made a bunch of mistakes, but essentially, where did everything go wrong for him? Yeah, it was likely maturity uh, issues going on. I don't think he was a guy who really knew who he was as a person when he entered the NBA, and you know, when you're in the NBA and under that limelight, it's a tough environment to figure that out. And... I think there was some family situations that that played a part on it that kind of pulled him in different directions and stunted his growth, likely as a basketball player and as a man. In terms of the reporting process, did you mostly seek out friends, family members, people that used to know him, people like that? Yeah, I did. And I think when I was reporting that section out of the book, it was really starting to go downhill for him. I think the last thing I read about him was that he was arrested in some sort of uh, drug bust uh, when he had guns or something. So uh, I don't think it was a happy ending or has been a happy ending for him. 
Tyson Chandler is a particular player who essentially knew he was going straight to the NBA and he prepared as such. You talked about it in the book, he barely paid attention to colleges outside of a limited flirtation with Michigan. He had a Rolex and a nice car as a senior. Some of the trappings of fame that you think might derail a young player. How do you stay away from that, in your opinion, and craft such a successful NBA career? I think he was one of those guys who recognized pretty early on that he has to play the system before it plays him. He had one of my favorite quotes in the book where he said that all the people he saw in the AAU system trying to take advantage of him were kind of the same people he saw on the streets uh, growing up in, in San Bernardino. And to me, that really made a lot of sense because it was just the, it was the same type of game being played in both areas. People trying to take advantage of his talents and he kind of recognized it for what it was really early on. Right. He definitely had his eye on the prize. He put on a lot of muscle in advance of the draft rather than just coasting on his size and talent alone. Yeah, and I know he was really aiming to be the top pick taken in that 2001 draft. And Kwame had the better of him at a workout that Michael Jordan was at. So that's what prompted uh, Washington to take uh, Kwame Brown over Tyson. Lenny Cook has one of the more tragic stories. If he and some of the people around him made better choices, it's entirely possible that he could have thrived in the NBA. He was just so good. It's also clear that the educational system failed him, continually passing him on to the next grade, no matter the work he did or didn't do. But back to the basketball aspect of it. In the year 2000, when Kobe Bryant was already an established NBA star, he went to one of these high school basketball camps to scout Lenny Cook. That was just amazing to me. That was that was funny to me as well. That was uh, one of Kobe's AAU coaches, Gary Charles, was also uh, had gone on to coach Lenny at a certain point point in time, and he almost forgot that Kobe was there, sitting in the stands with him until. Kobe was like, where's Lenny at? And Lenny was playing on another court. And Gary Charles pointed him out. And then Gary went back to watching the game that he was watching, forgetting Kobe was there. And then, you know, a few minutes later, after watching him, Kobe was like, he's not ready yet. And just got up and, and walked out. So that shows how, you know, serious Kobe was about about the game and about himself and that he would want to go out and scout, you know, the other top high school players. Just out of curiosity, do you have any data on how frequently a high schooler declared for the NBA draft without hiring an agent and then ended up going to college or junior college after not getting good feedback? Yeah, I'm pretty sure those instances are rare. And I'm trying to think of somebody specific who that who that happened to, but nobody is immediately coming to mind. Do you think that's just a combination of a number of things? For instance, maybe the feedback information not being that reliable, kind of all over the map, so it's confusing for a high school player to know which source to trust and and not trust. And also, I think maybe a, a good portion of the time, once a player makes that decision, it's kind of hard to turn back from it. Even if the agent hasn't been hired, you're kind of just all in, I think, when you make the decision a lot of the time, for better or for worse. Yeah, I think a couple of it were just guys trying to fulfill dreams and, you know, some, a couple of them didn't even have a chance of playing 
Division One basketball, let alone the NBA. There's so much revisionist history in the book. That's always a fun thing to think about. One example is John Calipari coming close to drafting Kobe Bryant with the New Jersey Nets. Another one was a teenage Tracy McGrady getting paired up with Michael Jordan before Jordan demanded that the Bulls keep Scottie Pippen in town. What's your favorite what-if from the book? I think the most interesting part to me was the chapter on the 96 NBA draft where 12 teams skipped over Kobe Bryant because I tried to go back and talk to some of the executives and coaches, and I hit up at least every team that passed on on Kobe Bryant, at least the executive or coach from the team. And if you look at them, they all had pretty solid excuses at the time. You know, like the 76ers had just drafted uh, Jerry Stackhouse and they had the top pick in the draft. And even though Kobe Bryant was in their backyard and actually one of their staff members was working out Kobe Bryant before the draft, they ended up taking Allen Iverson. And if you just go down the road or go down the list, people had valid excuses, but, you know, they passed up on a, all-time great player. So it was interesting to me to kind of look at that as a whole and see why these teams passed on Kobe at that time. I don't want to put you on the spot right now, but do you think if you had to, you could name the 12 guys that were drafted ahead of Kobe Bryant in 1996? I can I, I can try right now. You want me to try? Yeah, sure. I wasn't actually going to ask you to do it, but I think that could be fun. Off the top of my head, I'm going to try. It was... Uh, Allen Iverson, Marcus Candy, Stephon Marbury, Ray Allen, uh, Samaki Walker, believe it or not, Todd Fuller, Vitaly Potapinko, Kerry Kittles. I'm trying to think. Uh, Lawrence and Wright. How many is that? Um, you're missing three guys right now. Do you want me to tell you who they are? Antoine Walker. Yep, Antoine Walker. And there's probably two other ones. Who who did I miss? Did you say Eric Dampier yet? No, I didn't. What about number three pick Sharif Abdurrahim? Did you say him? No, I didn't. Those were the two I was missing. If you go back and look at that list, there's, you know, there's a couple guys who were superstars, obviously, like Ray Allen and Allen Iverson. But there's a lot of guys who didn't really make a dent in the league who were taken before Kobe Bryant, and that's remarkable. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the two superstars, and then there were a number of guys who were stars, but just not for that long. Two of the funnier ones to me are Todd Fuller and then Samaki Walker. Not only was he not really that good of a pro, but he was Kobe Bryant's teammate later. Let's change gears for a second. You dedicated the book to your immediate family. You're also now dedicating the book to four men whom you interviewed, who sadly passed away after the book was finished, but before it was released. The book literally begins with Moses Malone, and of course Flip Saunders was instrumental throughout Kevin Garnett's pro career. Daryl Dawkins, another prep-to-pro player like Moses Malone, early one. And Johnny Bach also died in the past year. What role did those guys play in this whole process? They were all very, very helpful and illuminating to me. 
the roles that they played in this whole generation of players. Obviously, Moses and Daryl Dawkins were pioneers. Uh, they were, you know, the first couple of players who made this jump. Moses in 1975 made it straight to the ABA, and without him, I don't think Daryl Dawkins or Bill Willoughby would have came the following year in 1976 by jumping straight to the NBA. So it was interesting, especially with Moses. Moses was one of those guys who was such a professional that you could tell from early on that his career was just headed towards stardom. And he was a shy guy, but he was really dedicated to the game and improving himself and uh, probably mature a lot beyond his years. While Daryl Dawkins was almost the other type of guy who was looking for a lot of fun and playful and joyful on the court, almost like a modern day Dwight Howard. But he was a guy who was still able to carve out a successful career. And Flip Saunders was the coach who really showed a lot of interest and energy and investment in Kevin Garnett and helped really grow his career. A lot of people don't remember that Flip wasn't uh, KG's first coach. Flip was the general manager at the time that the Timberwolves drafted Garnett, and he came down to the bench and replaced Bill Blair about midway through Kevin Garnett's rookie season. And they obviously created a really tight, lifelong bond. And Johnny Bach was the person who was a longtime Bulls assistant and close with Michael Jordan so that when the Wizards drafted Kwame Brown, he was on that staff and watching Kwame every day. So all four of those people were really instrumental to the NBA and instrumental to the making of this book. Three of those guys just died way too young. It's terrible that they won't be around any longer, but they'll live on through their myriad contributions to the league and through your book. Now, we know Bill Willoughby, Moses Malone, Daryl Dawkins, all of them made the jump well before Kevin Garnett and Kobe Bryant, but those two guys were pioneers in the sense that it had been a while since players from high school made that jump and to the level of success that KG and Kobe did. When Garnett made the decision coming out of high school, he was asked about being a role model for others who might make the jump from high school in the future. He said, oh man, I don't want that on me. All I do is wish them good luck. He was essentially shying away from being treated as the token high schooler to make the jump. He didn't want his success or failure to be generalized to those guys. In the years before the rule was changed, with more accumulating prep to pro success, was there noticeably less pressure on guys making the leap because of Garnett and Bryant's success? I think a lot of it corresponded to where you were drafted at. If you were a guy like Kwame, the top pick of the draft, teamed up with Michael Jordan, expected to lead the Wizards to the playoffs for the first time in you know, forever, then there was obviously a lot of pressure. If you were a guy taking 17th in the first round, I don't think there was as, as much pressure. You could be allowed to kind of grow into the type of player that you're going to become no matter what. Right. The middle of the first round seems like a sweet spot for those guys. You don't have the expectations of being a lottery pick. But then again, you have the security that doesn't come with being drafted in the second round. Yeah, almost somebody like J.R. Smith or Al Jefferson. Two great examples. Now, the high school player's relationship with the shoe companies, as outlined in the book, is far from black and white, a very complex issue that you did a good job of presenting both sides and arguments for. There was definitely some exploitation going on, but the companies were also showcasing the best young teenage talent 
and providing them an outlet to perform on a big stage. Sonny Vaccaro, whom you prominently discussed in the book, seems to love money. Can't he also want what's best for the teenage athletes? Or when it's all said and done, is it difficult to square those two ideas? I don't think it's difficult. I think it was kind of the role for a lot of these a lot of these players and a lot of the other kind of third parties that are invested in these players, because in order for if these players do well, it's almost like they do well as well. So it's in their best interest to do everything they can to help these players careers grow. So is it completely altruistic? I don't think so. But at the same time, you know, I think a guy like Tracy McGrady really saw that, Hey, these guys are helping me, you know, when I need to be getting me to the tournaments, I need to be at things along those lines. So they, helped advance his career when his career needed help advancing. You did your journalistic duty. You objectively presented various perspectives on what should be done next. But now I'm asking you about your opinion. As we're seeing now with LSU's Ben Simmons, the student part of student-athletes often missing with these one-and-done situations, and they're so common. It's kind of like they're just renting these players for a year. There's the occasional Brandon Jennings or Emmanuel Moody eyes who go overseas for a season. Of course, there's a strong argument for allowing players the agency to jump straight from high school as well. But then again, when they do jump straight from high school before the rules change, there were a slew of problems with that. So many problems now. I know there's no solution that will be without its drawbacks, but what would you like to see happen? It's, it's a tough situation because you can definitely see both sides of the argument. I can see the NBA's argument for wanting to extend the age limit because the league and its teams are investing millions of dollars in these players. You want to see a more mature product. You don't want it to be just a guest game. And, you know, for the players, you can see why they would want to extend their professional careers for as long as possible and be able to earn that NBA income. So whatever, whatever changes it's going to be, I don't think this one and done situation is, really great for for anybody involved it's probably not for the colleges and it's probably not good for the players who either want to be able to come out the league as, as soon as possible and i don't think it's good for the league because the league wants to make it at least two years so i think it's going to change in some form or fashion in the future we'll see what the rule will become yeah you alluded to this at the end of your answer there's a looming fight between the commissioner's office and the players association Adam Silver said it publicly, he wants a two-year minimum out of high school, and you can bet that Michelle Roberts and the Players Association will be fighting tooth and nail to prevent that from happening in the next collective bargaining agreement. Where does the NBA go from here? There's definitely going to have to be a lot of compromising, and neither party is going to get what it wants. Yeah, I don't think anybody is going to be ever completely happy. I think what happened to establish the one-and-done rule in the first place, I think, could be something that happens again, whereas whether it's, if it's between, you know, having a, a age limit or the current NBA players being able to keep uh, how much contracts they're earning or how much money revenue comes into them. If it's a, if it's a choice between that, then I think the age limit is what is going to uh, fall or, or be lengthened for the players. Just the final question for you, Jonathan, and it really was a pleasure having you on and getting to hear all about the book and, and the content, but the book concluded with a very powerful story on Tony Key, 
where you juxtapose real-life beckoning and Tony refusing to let the dream completely die? How was that chosen as the conclusion? I wanted to end with sort of... Uh, this is a tough question. It just felt like a, a natural ending because here was a guy who was in his early 30s now who was still trying to cling to this dream who had once been thought of as a guy who could jump from high school to the pro who the system had kind of taken advantage of somewhat, but also some of it fell on his shoulders. And, you know, I wasn't sure if he was ever able to completely mature as a man, even in his young thirties and he was still chasing this dream. So that's why I thought it would be good to end on it because, you know, it's good to have dreams and and good to be able to chase them and, you know, who's to say when to give up on it. But, uh, at a certain point in time, I think you have to be realistic in life. Before I let you go, I'd be remiss not to congratulate you again on the debut of your very first book. It's exciting. I know you've been getting some great feedback already, and I hope those copies just fly off the shelves. I really appreciate it, Aaron.